Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, first of all, uh, an announcement that seems to be necessarily uh, to necessarily be made every time one has a public meeting these days. Uh, it's the old warning about pages and telephones. Uh, if you could turn them off, if anybody do have them and they are switched on, we would be grateful. Uh, another mini announcement is that some of you, uh, I know some of you here will know that Kathleen Rain is in hospital currently, and you may be wondering how she is. I saw her this, after, this afternoon, and the message is that she is on the mend. So uh, I think Keith may have a little bit more to say about Kathleen later. Well, we come to the evening's lecture, which is by my old friend and, and uh, colleague, who it's always a pleasure to welcome and a privilege to introduce, Keith Critchlow. I suspect that from familiar faces that many of you at least have attended one of his lectures before, and you will know what an inspirational lecture he is. It's not often recognised, I think, how, how seldom, in my experience anyway, how, how seldom one comes across a really inspirational lecture. And I can honestly say that of the many lectures I've ever been to, only a handful of people I would classify as inspirational, and Keith is certainly one of them. Keith and I, as they say, go back a long way, and... Uh, I first heard about him in the early 70s. Uh, the, the painter Keith, uh, sorry, the painter Cecil Collins uh, told me that there was this extraordinary man who could give these fantastic lectures using two screens and no notes, purely spontaneous, he said. He was absolutely bowled over by this. You must come and see one of these lectures, and hear one of these lectures. This was for an organization called Rilco, in the very early 70s in the lecture theatre at the public um, library in South Kensington. The Rilco stood in those days for the uh, Research into Lost Knowledge organisation run by a, uh, a very venerable lady called Janet Jackson. And I duly went to one of these and I was bowled over. Uh, here was a subject I knew nothing about um, and it was basically, there was nobody doing research into, almost nobody doing research into sacred geometry in those days. The only work that I had ever seen before that which hinted at and touched upon the subject was a book on the Gothic Cathedral by Otto von Simpson. <coughs> but uh, over the weeks and those several years, I went to many of Keith's lectures, I went to everyone I could. And it became apparent, this opened up this extra, I can't tell you how exhilarating it was in those days to have this enormous subject of sacred geometry to do with the positions and the courses of the stars and the planets, to do with architecture, uh, to do with all building arts, etc., etc. This went on, this, it was a great unfolding of a subject which was completely new, and these lectures were always packed out. Several years after that, it was uh, a very great privilege when Keith and myself, with Kathleen Wayne and Philip Sherrard, founded a journal called Temenos, the original Temenos, which was in those days just a journal. It went on for 13 issues for about, I think, about 12 or 13 years. It came out about once a year. And it was the demise of that journal which led to people saying, we can't have no Temenos. This went on for two or three years, and so in the end, Kathleen said, we will have to have a Temenos Academy. 
rather like the uh, Platonic Academy, the Florentine Academy, and so on. And, and that was the idea behind the Tamil Academy, which are now, of course, has been going, I think, what, 10 or 11 years now. But Keith, as well as being uh, a brilliant lecturer, an inspirational lecturer, is also a practicing architect, and he's also, uh, I should think, pretty much a world-famous teacher. I remember going to America in 89 and going to such far-flung places as New England, uh, New Mexico, uh, Dallas, and one or two other places. Everywhere I went, I met people who had been to a workshop of Keith's, and they were... I remember one man was making toys for children based on sacred geometry, another man was a house builder, and all these people were doing various things based on what they had been inspired to do largely by going to Keith's lectures. Um, of course, I referred to Keith's teaching. He's been the head, he set up originally the visual, Islamic, and traditional arts um, section of the originally the Royal uh, College of Art down in South Kensington. And then, of course, when the Prince of Wales' architecture was founded uh, in Regent's Park, it was transferred to there, where he ran it for many years. And indeed, he now in semi-retirement, he continues to head the uh, Vita section, as it's known. And I think, in fact, there are probably some, if not all, of the Vita current students are here, are they? Probably. Um, and I said to him just a moment ago, is there anything new I can say about you? Because I've introduced him quite a number of times now, and I said, tend to say the same thing. He says, well, you can say I'm still breathing. Uh, and uh, he is now currently engaged in an architectural uh, project again. He is part-time with Vita. And um, he let slip, I don't know to what extent this will come to fruition, because he's a reluctant writer, but he tells me he's putting uh, some writings in order. And that's very exciting. I've tried for years to publish some of his writings and never got anywhere with him, despite the fact that everybody would like to see writings of Keith. We've never managed to uh, persuade him, but now let's hope in semi-retirement uh, he can be managed to, um, he can be um, persuaded, I should say, to uh, put some of his ideas down in writing. But you'll see in a way, when you see tonight's lecture, why it's very difficult to, to put uh, his lectures down into the form that takes to the printed page. I remember a very amusing incident uh, many years ago when we had two very large and successful conferences at Dartington Hall. I think they were 86 and 88. It must have been the first one. And I was sitting next to Wendell Berry in the barn listening to this extraordinary lecture. And well, you'll see what I mean later on when, when Keith uh, gets on his feet and starts to perform and performs the operative word because Wendell leant over and said, It's poor vaudeville. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, <laughs> you'll see why it's poor vaudeville and a lot more besides, I should add, <laughs> when Keith uh, gives his talk, which I'll now ask him to do. Thank you very much, Keith. like being wired up in hospital here. Is it, is it working? Speak, but we don't know otherwise. Yeah. Uh, can you, is, is the machine working? Because I've, I've pushed the button here. Oh, technology, I love it. 
I should keep talking, I suppose. <laughs> anyway. Thank you very much, Brian. And I ought to say right away that sitting three people away from you is somebody who has captured me in writing twice and done very well out of it, and it's Thomas Norath. And I'm very pleased to see you, Thomas. So, but um, uh, he'd, he'd probably tell some interesting stories about doing that. Can I be heard? No. Who can't hear me? <laughs> now, lady, the front rows say no, that's bad. Uh, I will throw my voice a bit then. Um, it's a very curious thing, if you're being recorded, it makes you more than somewhat self-conscious, and you tend to speak slightly less loudly, but then you forget that people need to hear you at the back. Try uh, how are we doing? Okay. Yes. As somebody who's notably anti-modern um, technology, um, it's, it's the most curious thing. Here as well, it's if you're speaking back to yourself. Anyway, I'm meant to be giving a talk. Uh, forgive me. It's very difficult to live up to when somebody makes an introduction like Dear Brian, which is very kind of him. I, I always sit there wondering who the heck he's talking about. <laughs> but nevertheless, um, what the first thing I'd like to say is two things, particularly. This is very much a non-historical um, talk. I was very, very pleased that we had um, our dear Greville Lindock come to our department and give a, a, a wonderful talk about the body of the Buddha the other day. And he, he was very discreet and very much a professional academic. He said, is anybody in the audience a historian? Looked at my students, none of which were, were quite terrified, and then he put their hand up. And he said, anybody else a sinologist, you see? And then he put their hand up. So I thought, that's a good way to start. Anyway, I was, if anybody here has come to hear a historical lecture about Buddhist architecture, they will be somewhat disappointed, because I tend to have to go I blow with, with, the, with the gust of the spirit. I, I talk until it's not me talking. So um, if at the end somebody wants to know all sorts of information, the books which I got my information from are here, and you're very welcome to, to look at them. The second thing I'd like to say is that I'm very much um, a student of uh, Confucius, who said the only person qualified to be a teacher is the person who's willing to relearn. And I have had to put this lecture together, not knowing a great deal about Buddhist architecture, being a great lover of it, and having collected a lot of things. But I'm going to put together a very broad um, palette. If, uh, whatever point you've had enough, I will not be offended if you have to get up and leave because of uh, some urgent other appointment. Uh, but I shall go on, and, uh, if I can, to get through the whole gamut. So I, I'll start with the first image on this screen, please. I'm sorry, the first image on that screen, Jonathan, I'm, I'm just getting myself right in the The first and maybe the most important consideration is that the Buddha is not a, an historical figure. The Buddha is a state of being and a state of permanence not a historical figure. He has a historical incarnation, but once a being reaches Buddhahood, they, are, they have transcended time, and the Buddha is just as much present at this moment as he may have been as a prince way back in the 6th century BC in India. So that's the point of view I'm going to speak from. And the very first, in other words, what you're looking at is a much later, in fact, it was at least 400, 500 years after the Buddha died before anybody either wrote his words down, amazingly enough, or attempted to make an image of him. Early on, it was 
it was almost as unthinkable as it is in Islam to make images of the holy prophet. God bless him. They just simply would have either a wheel as an image of the Buddha when he gave the lecture about the wheel of Dharma, or they would have a, a throne with nothing, no beyond it, or they have a pair of feet marks. But the, the Buddha himself was not to be represented. And it's only very much later that um, with uh, um, the influence of, of, of memory and the oral tradition coming out, they decided, and maybe to meet other traditions too, in who's, who, who knows, but the image of the Buddha is quite a late occurrence. And it varies greatly, it varies uh, across the board. But the most important thing to remember, and this is the basis of this talk, the Buddha nature, the Buddha nature excludes nothing. You're looking at, you may think you're looking at a, a, a human body there, but the, it is the circular form behind him, which is the Buddhahood, and the body you're looking at is only representing his human incarnation. This was told to me directly by Situ Rinpoche, one of my Tibetan Buddhist teachers. I haven't had any long, extensive Buddhist teaching, but the little bit I've had has, has been life-changing for me. Um, now, the other thing I wanted to say was, I'd like to dedicate this particular evening to Kathleen Rain, who, in her e extraordinary um, tenacity, is not only hanging on to life, but getting back life, because a few days ago she looked as if she wasn't going to make it. And um, I'd like to use a poem of hers on this screen here to give you an idea of that very basic fact that the state of being, the state of Buddhahood or the Buddha nature is the nature of everything, all and everything. For a Buddhist, nobody in this room is any less a Buddha than they are themselves. I think Kathleen has captured this brilliantly, and I would just like to maybe flash a quick commercial. If anybody is feeling like getting to know a little bit more about Kathleen Rain, who I consider to be our most important and leading, certainly at the moment, living poet in this country. There are a couple of books for, of hers here for sale, which Brian publishes. And you only, it's only when you read Kathleen's poems that you realise what an extraordinary um, connection they have through all the different traditions. Right, put the next one over there. Please. Now, the other thing that is um, sometimes baffling to the West, um, I myself have often had strange thoughts about how kind it is to trees to make them so dwarfed. But this is, this is a kind of image, it, it's, it's a special rock on which a miniature tree has been grown and it will sit in, in, in the alcove in a very humble house or maybe a less humble house or in a tea house in, in Japan and it's a reminder, meditation, that we and the natural world are not different. It's not at all difficult to see geometry when it's presented to us like that. The triangulation of light coming from the circular sun and the absolute horizontality of the sea. But I wanted to tie this up again with one more poem by Kathleen on that side. Extraordinary paradox about the present moment.
next one here. Now, as far as Buddhism is concerned, and almost um, a polarized difference between Eastern approach and the Western approach, we've come to use those words, Eastern and Western, incredibly presumptuous of us, and, and, and call people in the middle, Middle Eastern. I mean, it's really an uh, extraordinary thing to have done, because when you're in Japan, I don't see why we shouldn't be called Eastern, but nevertheless, you have to travel a bit further around the Pacific. Anyway, this is, this is really the, 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 almost the basic attitude that comes from the, the far Orient. It's not what is out there that is of primary importance, rather it's what is me who believes that they are experiencing it out there. We in the Western world have not yet quite challenged what is the basis of contemporary materialist science? We haven't quite challenged the fact that where is the consensus that these so-called truths of modern science are based? And what's extraordinary is if you get an extreme um, case, um, a scientist will say to you, well, psychology isn't actually a science. Well, in which case, the science of who am I has been wiped out. And this, this is where the tragedy begins. You will never, ever find out who me is if you don't ask that question. And of course, the whole of Buddhism is actually about how the central self is released from suffering. The Buddha said, I'm going to offer you a path which will give you liberation from suffering. While you're in human form, while you're in incarnate form, you will go on getting aches and pains, headaches, toe aches, and suffer. But there is a way out of it. Next one. Now, this is from a book, a very, very good book indeed, called The Symbolism of the Stupa by a man called Adrian Snodgrass. Um, Adrian Snodgrass is an extraordinary scholar in Australia who published this also extraordinary book. It's not really up to what we would call a professional published state because it's only typewritten, as you can see here, and the diagrams have been drawn by him. But it's now gone out of print because the only very short run was printed, and it was printed in India, I think. But it's an extraordinarily good book. And there he's just giving a very basic uh, series of, of vibratory envelopes from unity. Unity, of course, is in the center, but unity is also on the periphery of this diagram. And then the first thing that comes out is the essence, the light or breath, which is the sacred geometry. Then the, the, this curious little eye of perception there, and then looking at the vibration of the manifest world. So there you get the process unfolding, four worlds unfolding, according to Buddhism. Next one here. And here, I've, uh, forgive me, I've written Adrian Snodgrass in the most horrendous um, non-calligraphy at the bottom here, just so you know who he is. If you want to check out this guy, he's quite remarkable. I had the good fortune of standing on the same platform and talking with him in Australia when I was there last year. But here, he's got these really good essential diagrams. And as I say, the Buddha was not represented in bodily form for the first, these four or more hundred years. He was represented more or less by a burial mound or the sacred mountain with the symbolism of the sacred axis going up the center. Then um, later on, Borobudur was built and there was a, a circumambulatory way of getting to. Very few people have the discipline to go from earth to heaven. It's an extraordinarily difficult path. Most of us um, like to perambulate to get there. And so when you see um, this form, this is the body of the Buddha, as much as it is a piece of architecture, incidentally, as far as the Buddha is concerned. You climb up and you, uh, you circumambulate, climb up, circumambulate, climb up, circumambulate. It has that in common with the um, Holy Quran, as the Holy Kaaba, where the Muslim uh, faithful 
uh, circulate around the cube of the Kaaba. But here, you're going up in, in, in stages. We'll come back to that in a minute. Now, there is the whole gamut of um, Buddhist architecture. And the lower, the earliest form is normally pointed to um, the stupa at Sanchi here, which is virtually a very, very beautiful, elaborate burial mound. And th this is the um, Borobudur, which is a very good case of this, this process. Uh, the first one, Sanchi, was just a, a, a prayer circulation around here. These are very solid and not too far away from just simply burial mounds, rather elaborate burial mounds. And as they developed, the, the symbolism became more and more elaborate in them. And as, they, as it migrated up to Tibet, through China, through to Japan, the same form became extraordinarily different. And what's interesting is these, which are called pagodas, pagodas or pagodas, they uh, come right back to this principle here, that those pagodas are a, a single central tree normally, often on a piece of metal, which is not much bigger than a nail, um, on the ground, so that if an earthquake comes through the building, it ripples up and down the thing, and, and everything shakes, but the building doesn't come down. It's actually poised on its central axis. It's the ontological axis. Whereas these, of course, are unlikely to come down because they're rather like the Great Pyramids. The earthquake wouldn't bring them down, so they're pretty much massive and solid. So there you get two extremes, but the symbolism being intrinsically the same. Next one here. Now here's a section through Borobudur, which is down here. And I have to say, sadly, the slide I had, the photographic slide of Borobudur, would not go through the slide machine, unfortunately. But here's this uh, still massive burial mound. And these wonderful, each one is a little repetition. Rather like the repetition of Om Mani Padme Hum, any chanting is a repetition of sacred sound. Here we have a repetition of the body of the Buddhist sitting inside these little fellows. And when we get to the major one at the top here, there's also a Buddha sitting inside here. Next one there. Now sadly, this is what happens too often in architecture and architectural books. A little bit of propaganda by me. And that is, there's a good accurate section through the top of Borobudur. No Buddha. Time and again, people will do books on, on, on Buddhist architecture, and they'll leave out the sacred image. And in doing so, they miss the whole point. Anyway, here we go. There's Buddhas inside here, which you can't see. In this drawing, there's a Buddha in here. Next one there. And this Buddha, most of them, can we have the next one here as well? There you can see this extraordinary shape in which this Buddha is. But this Buddha is sitting like you are on a chair. And therefore, we know this is the Buddha of the future. There's Buddha of the past, there's Buddha of the present, and there's Buddha of the future. So this is the Buddha of the future. And um, dear uh, Greville, um, the, other, the other day, suggested that maybe this is a sign that um, he will be like we are now, decide to sit on chairs. If we were a traditional audience, we'd all be on the ground, cross-legged. And some of you, I feel, are groaning inside at the very thought of doing such a thing. Um, we're much more comfortable like this. So this is the Buddha of the future in the middle of Borobudur. Next one over there. And inside each of these bell forms, each bell form is a repetition of the whole. It's rather like, um, well, many ways in the front door, but the, the whole, but they've taken the lid off this one. Although you can see through the Buddha inside, they've taken the lid off, and here's a Buddha inside. And these are miniature re reproductions of the whole thing. Again, 
So in a way, it's making the point that the essence of matter, the essence of a burial mound, which is made of, of, of earth and matter, the essence of it is Buddha. Buddha nature is everything. There's nothing which is not the Buddha nature. So we'll come on to that again. Next one here. Now this is rather interesting. These are the stages of Buddhist meditation uh, from Pali scriptures. This is what um, Greville was talking about with, to the students of Beta this week. And um, the stages in meditation go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Can you see they're making a spiral slowly, 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 and spiral up into here. Now, Lama Govinda, in his book on Tibetan Buddhism, um, noted that, this, that these stages here, next one there, if they were drawn as a, as a continuous line um, uh, through the stages of meditation, until one got to the center of oneself, one's Buddha nature in the middle here, Tathagati, as it says in the middle, then it is identical to traveling the paths of Borobudur, because Borobudur has this pathway which you... And no doubt the monks, um, and maybe lay people becoming monks, would pray and chant their way around this circulation to here. Next one shows you the, just a drawing of it, and as you come up these stairs, you'd go around these platforms, and then around the platform again, around the platform again, and theoretically you would cover the same ground. This, this is the, an idea by Lama Govinda. Next one over there. Now this is another very important thing which um, Adrian Snodgrass rather beautifully has done his first hand research, his primary research into the, into the literature, Buddhist literature, uh, which is the biggest problem we have in modern English is we can't translate the, most of the Buddhist material because we do not have, the English language is not structured to deal with psychological and, and states of consciousness. The English language is absolutely brilliant at discovering, uh, looking at and, and describing the physical world, but it's not a language to describe the psychological and the spiritual world. So there's been a big problem. So the first part, this mass here, this earthly mass, the burial mound, is called the world of desire. Then these stages on top are the world of form, the different kinds of form. Then the formless world is represented by the simple flame-like form here, and then above that is the void. That's the symbolism behind these forms. Next one here. And this, I think, is a brilliant drawing by Snodgrass. Shows how the body of the Buddha and the extension, this is part of the indication that the Buddha became the Buddha, because the, the, it's obviously the crown chakra flowering. But these buildings, however different they are, even, remember, Buddha was primarily a Brahmin. He, 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 in the same way that Christ is Jewish, um, the Buddha comes from the Vedas, comes from the Vedic tradition, and because he found a new path, he called it the middle way to try and cut down ascetism, he um, founded so-called Buddhism. But here is the body of the Buddha, and this, this is how the form of his body can be transferred into um, the, the, the um, homology, as um, Adrian Snodgrass calls it. Next one there. So when we get a, a, a form like this, um, it, there's meant to be a direct relationship to the body. Um, if we show that here, that is the, the, the circulation of spirit, the circulation of, of the subtle energies in the body. Next one here. So this is a direct elevation of that. 
and the forces coming down, the solar forces, one might say, celestial forces, and the influences going up are the aspiration of man trying to get to the, the conclusion of himself. What, what, what am I? Who am I? So here we see these forces within body, and of course the steps and stages are symbolically related to the subtle body, the chakras, and all the different we'll come back to these, it's a terribly important part of understanding Buddhist architecture. You can only understand it if you, if you understand the actuality, uh, nay, reality of the subtle body. Modern Western science has not got anywhere near being able to investigate because, as it's said in all traditions, the spirit is the only thing that can investigate the spirit. If you don't approach the spiritual world with the spirit in yourself, there's nothing you'll see of it. So if you want to become a materialist and remain a materialist, then just hang on to your sensory perceptions. But if you'd like to do more, find out more, a greater reality, then you have to find other qualities in yourself. Ask yourself who you are. If you're a materialist, you might grab hold of something and say, this is me. Usually what people do, they'll take their right hand if they write with the right hand. You ask somebody who they are, and they say, I am, and they'll do that. Any child would do it, because they're quite uninhibited. You ask somebody who they are, observe next time. Next time somebody comes into office. Ask me that, and they'll do that. I am, and I'll put the hand on the heart, and I'll say their name. Nothing they can get hold of is them. What I'm getting hold of now is 18 months old, if I'm lucky. <laughs> I won't tell you how old I really am, <laughs> but... 18 months, obviously. Yeah, I get hold of my teeth and hope they'll be a bit older, and they are maybe a little bit older. Yes, my teeth are a bit older. There is nothing in my body which is in any way recognisable that is anywhere near how old I am. Everything in my body is seven years old, with the big exception of some very specialized nerve cells, which if you saw them walking around, you'd all head to the door very fast. You'd think I'd gone into something. So remember, you physically are not more than seven years old. Then you're made up with whatever you bought at Sainsbury's or whatever you've been putting down in your mouth. So who are you? That's the question. Next one. Now the other thing which is fascinating is that when images of the Buddha did become to become uh, made out of stone on the basis that wherever you look, there's even a very nice piece in the Bible, so in the stone you'll find me there, even in the most dense stone, Michelangelo talked about releasing the, the prisoner in his, in his blocks of marble. Here is the Buddha being released from this block of stone. But what's interesting is the Bodhi tree under which he was enlightened, the Bodhi tree is also his, his, his Sahasara. It's also his crown chakra. You see how the tree is all coming out of the top of his head. Now, if you happen to be entering Sharch Cathedral on, by the south entrance, and you look up and you see Christ holding the Bible there, you'll see he has exactly a similar thing over his head, a little canopy which is full of leaves like that. I'm not suggesting Christ was a Buddhist. Please don't misunderstand me. <laughs> I've had some very embarrassing times in my life where I've actually talked about Hinduism and Christianity together to a Christian society in Essex, and as soon as I finished the lecture, they rushed me into a room and started praying very hard for my soul. <laughs> I obviously said the wrong thing. Next one. I'm not. Uh, all I'm saying is, when you reach a certain level of, of, of actuality, reality, what you like to call it, there is an extraordinary parallel. Here, these extraordinary way in which the Buddhists showed their um, fervor of faith or whatever, they would cut into a sheer cliff of rock and make a, um, a shrine 
out a, a shrine which looked like it had been built out of wood outside, cut into sheer rock. And at a certain point during the day, the, the Buddha himself is revealed to be at the center of the most dense of material, and a certain day of the year, the sunshine comes down and lights up his figure. Whether it's Midsummer's Day or not, I'm not quite sure which one it is. But here again is the, um, this, the, the, this burial mound image carrying through called a stupa. And here is the Buddha. This is the Buddha of the future, <coughs> sitting with his feet down. That one is the Buddha of the present. His feet folded under him. He's touching the earth with his right hand. I learned all this this week, by the way, from the next one here. <coughs> now, just in case that is too dense, I wanted to be, if I may, just jump a little bit and, and say, well, the other extreme um, of the Buddha being in the most dense of matter there's, there's nowhere where the Buddha is not, as far as a Japanese painter is concerned. A classical Japanese painter, this is a very beautiful classical uh, piece in which <coughs> the um, pagoda is here. The pagoda and, and the tree are not too different, just different enough for you to see that's man-made and this is a natural world. Here you see this little shelter here in which the sage is sitting just simply looking at nature and here is the little fellow who's learning from the sage but has to bring him his sandwiches every lunchtime. You find this little figure with possibly an umbrella uh, and the, the sage meditating here. And the natural world, and again, the voidness of the Buddha represented by, by this extraordinary amount of the painting, which is not there at all. Just simply what one might call cloud or mist. Next one there. The next one I think is a close-up of that. No, that, sorry, that's, this is a close-up. That's the whole painting. Terribly important to see the whole painting because from one voidness at the bottom, which is just sheer snow or water coming into whiteness here and again um, uh, it goes from nothing to nothing take nothing from nothing and you still have nothing and a nice little zero in the middle now I have a next one here sorry uh, maybe the next one is there I thought it was a poem to go with that yes I, I just thought that little Buddhist poem would rather be that. can we go back on, on one here while we're, while we're looking at this In such a poem, the natural world and human experience of it are not separate. That is the whole point. The wintry cliffs are our own attitude inside. The dispelling of darkness is our own understanding coming about as much as it is watching night come and the moon rise and so forth. So this is again the, the wisdom of Buddhism was this extraordinary compassion for the natural world. Okay, next one here. From that simplicity to go to complexity, here we have um, a, bodhis a bodhisattva with 11 heads and a thousand arms. So, I mean, it, it is extraordinary, the variety of expression in, in Buddhism. And yet, even with these thousand arms <coughs> and with these 11 heads, um, we come back to the absolute simplicity, eventually, of, of the circle. And next image there is the fourth patriarch, Kukai. And he is one of venerated in Japan, and there he is sitting inside his own unity, sitting inside his own celestial sphere on the lotus. And as a child, of course, but he was, he was very, very important influence in Japan. And in a book on Japanese tantric Buddhism, I found a very nice way of the link between the circle 
or I should say the sphere and the lotus, and the sacred geometry. So I'll just show you these and a little bit of commentary that goes with them. If the if the circle or sphere, it says circle, but it actually means sphere, is on the lotus, it is spirit or mind emanating from matter. So this is mind emanating from matter. The lotus in the circle is matter produced from mind. This is the wonderful paradox in Buddhism. Is matter something produced by mind, or is mind something produced by matter? The Western world has no problem, it's that way around. And we believe in evolution, we believe in a lot of very strange things, and that's the only way it can come about. Well, the Buddhists say, well, no, maybe this is true too, rather than uh, this is true in exception of that, um, but this is when it's understood that um, the whole of the world, which we believe is outside ourselves, may well actually emanate from within us. Thus, without the phenomenal world, there's no consciousness. Without consciousness, there's no phenomenal world. Without object, no subject. Without subject, no object. This is how the Buddhist, Buddha, Buddhism teaches these wonderful paradoxes. Next one. And that now leads to sacred geometry because these things can be seen as lotuses in the sphere, but they can also be seen as circle and square. Now, there's only one slight sadness in the illustration in this book. A circle should be touching at these four points because when it does so, it creates a triangle and the third form is born. But if we replace the lotus flower by a square, the square, the square always represents the earth, representing ultimate reality of the actuality, if you like, of the universe, of our true nature, the correct functioning of our minds, of enlightenment, non duality, and the absolute emptiness. Reduced by its simplest terms to two elementary symbols a circle and a square, and the square and the circle. So here is the material world as a product of mind, and here is mind as a product of material world. Very, very simple. But, but essentially terribly important, because when it comes to the mind in which the material world is formed, what mind are we talking about? Is human mind the only mind? I hardly think that's madly acceptable, except to... Um, Arabian humanists. Next one here. <laughs> so, we get this absolute masterpiece of a painting by Sengai, a painting of the universe. How nice to be able to paint the universe. It's such simple. Three um, movements of the hand. He may have meditated for 24 hours without stopping before painting this picture, so one, one mustn't be fooled by the simplicity. But, and remember, the Japanese work from here to here to here. So the first thing is the circle with the richest amount of ink in the brush. And then the triangle, which is emanating from the circle. And then the square, which isn't actually a square. It's actually near a golden mean rectangle, which is rather fun. But the square, where the ink is, is now the least uh, dense and least um, uh, actual, whatever you want to call it. Um, and the consciousness is just rather curiously and rather lovely. Just bleed, bleeding into here, like this. And when was it painted? Pardon? When was it painted? When was it painted? Painted. It was painted about... Not a history lecture. What? Not a history lecture. Not nearly 200 years ago. Or maybe a bit less. Now you mustn't accept that. You must go home and find out, you see. <laughs> Never accept an answer a lecture gives you. Because you'll have to say something. <laughs> <laughs> So then we have this, and I can tell you a lot about this because it's got it written at the bottom. Um, 
Um, oh my goodness, that's even more confusing. Stupa of the five circles after a print of the 14th stroke 16th century, even the book doesn't know it's the 14th or 16th century, um, in Muroji Nara. Now this is very, very important to do because what is being seen there, square, circle, triangle, and then two more versions of the circle above actually become very, very important. Not only their sacred, we'll, come, we'll see how their sacred geometry, but their sacred forms, but the forms have sacred sounds to them. You invoke the essence of the earth by ah sound. But if you're a Hindu and you pronounce the, the, the pranama aum, you are encompassing the whole of the universe. Ah, the beginning, um, the maintaining, um, the closing. The whole of the universe is in that one sound. And then vam, to evoke this level, ram, to evoke the heart, hum, the throat, and come. So these are part of, of Tantric Buddhism. Next one here. And also, there is um, another image coming from there. And then they are put into rather more conventional geometric form. This, by the way, both of these are the body of the Buddha. Never think that we're describing something else. There's nothing else in Buddhism than the Buddha nature. This is the Buddha nature in geometric form. Square of earth, yellow and south, white water circle, fire red triangle, east, the half circle, black, and north, air, and finally space, blue at the top, the flaming drop, west. So the directions, the colors, the sounds, the sacred mantrams are all built into this geometry. This geometry becomes the basis of the architecture. Next one there. So you get a little monument like that, and many people in Japan have gravestones, and the gravestones are just versions of that. This is just a little three-dimensional version of those forms. Rather beautifully done. Next one there. So whether we're talking about India, where we found these forms, or China, and uh, Tibet, China, or Japan, um, all these forms are based on this same principle, and this these are positions in the body as well. So here we have the root center, that's the, the sacred bone we sit on, it's called the sacrum in, in, in our language still, in, in English. Where we make sacred contact with the ground when we're sitting on it. Here the navel center is white, the heart center is a triangle, it's red, the throat center here is, is half green, and then blue flaming drop is the om, either the, the third eye here or the whole of the top of the head. So these are psychological centers in the body. They're also, they turn into three dimensions where obviously this becomes cubic, this becomes hemispherical, this becomes conical, this becomes umbrella-like and so forth. They become three-dimensional when they come into the material world. But nevertheless, they are the basis of the form. And there's a correct place for them. There's a correct meaning of them in terms of one's relationship. You could actually, if you wish to, if you were an aesthetician, if there is such a thing, somebody who deals with aesthetics, come up with a very, very important uh, new approach to aesthetics. And that would be when you have butterflies in the tummy, when you have choked. All these figures of speech we use are to do with where we are being affected in our subtle body. And this may well be to do with what kind of building we're in. We're in a very, very healthy room here because we are in the worldly part of it, which is the cubic part. But if we look up, we're in the triangular domain of consciousness. So any time you have a ceiling shaped like this, you're a lot better off than if you have a ceiling which is straight across. 
don't believe a word I say. <laughs> Next one here. So this is, I took this from Lama Govinda's book, where the colors and the meditation sounds and the circulation of light, as it's called, in, in, in contemplative techniques, start from the root center. They go up to the top. They do not. Their idea is not. Many people have, have made terrible mistakes about so-called Kundalini meditation. So forth. if you take the energy up and to the top of your head, you literally blow your mind. It's completely silly and, and, uh, and not under the instruction of a teacher or anything else like that. The idea you take it up to the mind, you cancel out the human mind with all its monkey tricks as, as the, and you bring it down into the heart. The whole the circulation to bring it back into the heart. Where is the seat of the seat of your center of yourself and the seat of compassion for all beings. Next one here. So here is a building, a very famous building in Tibet called the Kumbung, and here it is cubic. There's a thousand images of Buddha inside here. Cubic up to here, therefore we're dealing with the cubic part. Circular part here, not hemispherical this time, but circular part here, therefore we've moved up to this level, Manipura. And then next one, then there's a little echo of the cubic again. Then we're in the cone form of the heart. Then with the umbrella form up there, which is the air. And finally, the, the what would be called the kailash in, in Hindu, but the flaming drop. The point, the point of origin, the point of all geometry, the, the starting point, the point of manifestation, which is being forced down. So the aspirations go up and the grace flows down. So there is the form based exactly on this. That is as much an image of the body of the Buddha as this is, as we are. His, his simple human bodily incarnation is considered to be relatively unimportant. I learned this from my Tibetan people. We're so obsessed with the physical body and we judge art aesthetically by how well they can carve the physical body. But in the East, that's just called merely the food body. And what about the life body, which can't be seen by the senses? Then what about the mind body? Then what about the buddhi, the intellect body? And then what about the spirit? There are all these different grades in the East, which we have yet, we're just beginning to have contact with. Next one here. Now, here again, huge um, migration to Japan, but the Hemispherical form is still just lurking there inside this, this, this pagoda. It's not a pagoda, many, many um, stories. But here's a very, very beautiful Japanese one. The Japanese, remember, are the great masters of carpentry. I don't think any nation has actually excelled more than the Japanese in carpentry. And you only have to see Japanese carpentry tools. And then the most intriguing thing is that a Japanese carpenter, when he's working a piece of wood, he'll work it towards his body. We always push our saws away, we chisel away. We don't allow anything sharp to come in there. But the, the commitment of a Japanese and the understanding of the sacredness of bringing the form into the body and the care and attention you have to pay is, is quite extraordinary. So they cut in towards the body, Japanese carpenters. It's very interesting to watch. So here is the same forms uh, conducted behind the, the symbolism but a very, very different natural expression of the Buddha body, of the Buddha nature. And just a reminder that this geometry is not outside our natural experience, outside the natural world. We are here as a human being looking at this. In fact, if, if, I, if, if my hand was a body, my camera eye is there because that's exactly the horizon is. If, my, if I raise my camera up, the horizon would have come up. If I take my camera down, the horizon would be here. Okay? So the horizon is where my camera lens is. 
Here we have the circle, the triangle, and horizontality and verticality in the most basic perception we have of the natural world. Next one here. Right, from there, this is a particular mandala, again from Japan, and the eight petals are a reminder that it's the lower of the heart chakras. We have a higher heart chakra which has 12 petals and a lower one with eight. There's the greatest accent on eight in most mystical traditions, it's in Islam as well as in other things, because this is, it's through the lower heart chakra you make contact with your teacher, your spiritual teacher, whether it's in incarnate form or not incarnate form. Now, the rest of this mandala are the many, many, many incarnations before the Buddha finally made it to become the Buddha, the Buddha nature in this incarnation here. But what I'm particularly keen to do is to just focus you on a little image which is in there, the only image in the whole of a very complicated, we'll come back to this again and again, little only time we don't see the Buddha is when we see this. This is the whole secret behind the secret or whatever, it's not a secret, it's an open secret as they say, but there, that little image up there, we'll come back to it, is called the All Knowledge of the Buddhas. The triangle in a circle, and inside the triangle is often a little tiny square, rotating square. Next one here. This is a different version of the same mandala, as you can see the colours have changed, and we're going to be looking at these geometries behind here in a minute. But there it is, the All Knowledge of the Buddhas. Circle with a triangle. In this particular case, the square is not inside it, but we'll see later on the square comes inside it. Now, what could that possibly mean? What it does mean is those essential geometries are essential. They're the basis of knowledge. And the word bud, which is the root of buddhi, buddha and buddhi, means no, K-N-O-W. In the tradition that the Buddha came out of, which is the Vedic tradition, um, you have manas, which is the human mind, which is the root of the, of the word man, mankind, a very ancient word, migrated down into Sanskrit and migrated into the Teutonic languages. The word man comes from manas, so it means the conscious animal. But that mind that we have is our animal mind. And this is where the big difficulty comes. This is where the difficulty in, in translation comes. If you translate something, many, many words, the word mind, which are uh, many levels of meaning, consciousness, and uh, time and again, just full mind. Well, buddhi is above manas. Buddhi is the stage where the human intellect can make contact with what's called the divine intellect. That is the permanent principles, the archetypes of Plato, and so forth. And the revelations of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, the sacred scriptures, they are there to take your human mind up into a supra-mind. So you experience permanence. That's why you repeat the same thing again and again and again. Um, next one there. So here we're looking at both the Buddha in our... Now there is the whole mandala. This was drawn in 1863. It's called the Hase Mandala. But again, all the incarnations the Buddha had to go through to get to his final Buddhahood, but rather beautifully represented at the top is that little all-knowledge of the Buddha. So the next one here. You see it again? And now it's got... Two squares, curiously enough. One square in the middle, which is a swastika. That means uh, turning. The world is turning, changing all the time. And there's another little one above it. I think it's close up there, I'll show it again. There we go. This is the All Knowledge of the Buddhas. Can we focus that? And you'll see two square images in it. 
and it focuses a bit more. Keep going, keep going. <laughs> it's a little thing being focused on. You're not allowed to have a sore knowledge tonight, folks. You didn't pay off. Okay, you have the source to get, you see a little square above there, and another one there. The three planes coming from. But there, that is the image of the all knowledge of the Buddhas. And it's sitting in that extraordinary position there. Now, what we're going to look at is the field. In Hinduism, out of which the Buddha came, the Kshetra, K S Kshetra, very difficult to pronounce, the field of existence is also the field of mind, that in which we make sense of things, that in which we see patterns and so forth. And in all these stages of the incarnation of the Buddha, there's a different ge geometry for each of the fields that he passes through to get to his ultimate Buddha nature. Next one here. Sorry, next one here. And what you'll see at the top is the first field here. Can you see it? This first field behind the Buddhas. The field is behind the Buddhas in each case. Three, one, two, three, four fields. This is the geometry of the higher field here. So the first stage is this one. Incidentally, if one, anybody here wants to get into this Buddhist geometry, we have actually put it together in the Kairos worksheets. And Kairos, if you want to find out about Kairos, you have to ask Jonathan, who's hiding behind the machine at the back there. But um, if, if somebody wants to find out how to draw these things, it's quite useful. Um, next one here. As we come down, sorry, bigger problem. Can you go back one? The next one we're going to look at is this one here, which probably is behind us now. This one. Oh, we've lost one. Next one here then. The hexagon. Then this one here is this one. Sometimes it shows those little um, emanations, the 16 emanations, the 8 emanations, and the 4 emanations. 4, 8, 16. Um, sort of radiant things. Next one here. And this is the last one. Can we go back one, Jonathan? This pattern here is the last one, the fourth world, the field, the kshetra, in which the final resolution happens. Next one here. And here you see, this is, this is constructed from a 4x4 four four square in a 5x5 five five square. Those proportions are rather important. Next one here. <coughs> Can you go back again? This one, I'm just now going to jump to a chladni plate. A chladni plate is a square of metal on a single stalk, which was part of scientific experiments at school when I was a school child. You put sand on it evenly, sprinkle sand on like that, and then you put a vibration into the stalk. And the sand, musical vibration, only drew a, 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 the bow of, 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 a, of a string instrument across the, the plate, and the sand would jump into patterns through the vibration. And the next one here is the vibration forming a pattern. That sound was evenly distributed on the plate until the vibration came in. If you want to know about this, there's a very good book called Chimatics. In German it's K-Y, in, in English it's C-Y. Chimatics by a man called Hans Jenny, J-E-W-N-Y. And this, just rather intriguingly, reproduces exactly that field. The particular sound, the particular vibration, produces that geometry. No human hand has touched that. Next one here. Oh, sorry, the hexagon one slipped. But this is the other field, the second field that, that went through after the circular field. And the, the, this is a rather beautiful diamond shape with a long, thin diamond inside it. And they, they emanate in, um, they meet in these hexagonal forms. So that is, that's the second field. 
axon here. Now, I thought that you might like to see the last field. Can we go back one on the other one, please? This one also appears here. What's that, you might say? It certainly isn't Buddhist. It certainly isn't Buddhist. There is a Virgin Mary. The Virgin Mary, having transcended to this world above, from the two people who are presenting architecture to her. Next one here. Next one again. Here she is. It's the dedication of the Abbey of Sitao to the Virgin Mary. And what's interesting about this, it, it follows the very similar rules of sacred geometry as the Buddhist imagery does. And not only that, it has exactly the same geometry. This may be a complete coincidence. I'm, I'm not here to sell um, anybody anything. But it's absolutely fascinating that the circle here emanates from the same position in the Buddha. And the Buddha has a secondary halo which emanates from third eye here. And both those things are consistent in this. And then this world, the world of, of time and incarnation, is here. Two saintly figures presenting uh, the Abbey of Sito. And again, um, the devoted monks who are less saintly in this. So one world, two worlds, three worlds. Now I just might like to see the sacred geometry of this, just very, very simply because it just confirms it. <coughs> There's the center of that circle, which is also a perfect square to the top and on which are sitting both of these. And if we take the equilateral triangle, which is a symbol of the trinity in Christianity, it actually touches the base of the circle, the heavenly circle. And these things are very simple. And a lot of people have thought this is primitive art. I was brought up as an art student to be told this is primitive art. I couldn't do perspective yet. Don't take too much notice of them. You wait till the Renaissance. It gets exciting then. <laughs> Completely missing the point that two dimensions are all that's needed in spiritual representation. The third dimension is going back to the food body. Next one there. Next one here, sorry. And that's just the complete, the complete um, whole page is a root three rectangle. And if we take a square from the base, it actually t cuts through the crowns of the two people and also focuses on the Bible here. Just very, very elementary part, piece of analysis. Okay, we can go on to the next one now, here. Now, when you see the Buddha represented like this, extremely beautiful, nothing could be more clear in terms of the circle, nothing could be more clear in terms of the square. The triangle is usually considered to be human consciousness. It's, it's a symbol of fire, and so it doesn't take much imagination to see the Buddha. Uh, and you can focus the triangle on here if you wish, or on the top, but you can see the Buddha is the triangle. He is the, 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 the epitome, the, the, the crowning uh, state of human consciousness, having reached divine consciousness. He is sitting within the world, but he's also um, in perfect um, harmony with, with heaven. Next one here. Now, there are two other ways of representing the Buddha. These are called the uh, Dayanichi Nayorum. Anyway, this is, this is one representation. This is the far representation of the Buddha. This is the same Dainichi here. Next one. And that is the womb version, water. The womb version, you see what's happening is a different, completely different behavior pattern in the, in the halo. Otherwise, other things are pretty similar. But there are, there are two representations of the Buddha in two different formats. <coughs> this is to do with knowledge of mind. This is to do with... Um, compassion and higher emotions, and it's called the womb version. 
So it's also quite important. Very, very interestingly for my students in beta, we see geometry and we see biomorphism again represented. The, 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 the turning and rhythmic pulsation of life in living forms, which we call biomorphic in Islam, and the, the, the geometry which holds them all together here. And it, of course, is an aspect of male and female about it, obviously. Right, next one here. Here we have a bit of architecture. You came to hear about architecture. What am I doing talking about all these Buddhas? Proportions of the temple, again, with great simplicity, the major triangle here focusing on the, the, the major image, or the spine, one might say, of the major image of, of the Buddha here. From the approach of multiplicity to unity. Then as you get to here, the two columns, which of course in, in, in the Western traditions would be Jashin and Boaz from the Old Testament, but the two columns, the duality, which have been reduced, the multiplicity of duality, and then a place of um, worship here, this, which is also the center of the square of this much of the architecture. This is a point of realization as you're transferring through here. And then finally, from here, you get into the closest relationship. But you've got to pass this point, which is a, which is a matter of submitting, again, the multiplicity of your mind, the singularity of your mind. Next one here. Now this is where um, books on Buddhist architecture and extremely beautiful and clever elevations and plans of Buddhist architecture can be, and most often is totally meaningless if the Buddha is not inside it. Because the Buddha is generating, this is one Buddha body, this is another Buddha, this is the human Buddha nature Buddha body. This is the um, universal, or the mesocosm. Microcosm, mesocosm, macrocosm, the whole. So the proportions of this building from here through, there's a triple incarnation of the Buddha here, through the apex, this is the Buddha body, this flame-like form is the Buddha, this is only the human body, through to this point, which is beautifully delicately curved here, back down to here, and then the equilateral triangles, which enclose the Buddhas here, they, the, dif the distance between this Buddha and this Buddha here is from the heart. The heart not only fixes these two points from here, but the, the rhythm will go through here and it will go to the heart of the other Buddha here. So the sacred geometry, one might say, of this building is being generated from the Buddha. And the, the clue is quite definitely here in the radiance, the geometry of, of, of his upper nimbus. Next one here. Here's a close-up of what I've just said. Next one over there. This is in China, this one. But this is just an analysis how many times have we seen Greek temples without, without the gods in them? Here's Zeus in the Zeus temple in, in ancient Greece. And just a very, very cursory analysis with the same angles that I've used on there, the half square and the equilateral triangle and the full square actually give key positions in the body of Zeus. It's this, in other words, the temple is an emanation of the body of God. And if the body of God's there, how can you draw this and understand it? Unless you have some idea. Tragically, of course, most of the uh, sacred gods have been taken out of the Greek. So the next thing here would be the Christian, and this is very well documented in Christianity, the overall equilateral triangle, which just touches these little pinnacles here, is from the light body, exactly the same light body on the Virgin Mary at the top of Milan Cathedral, 
and the sacred instrument, the eye of God, and the two points of a pair of dividers, the sacred tool of sacred geometry is put by beside. This, this is by Cesariano. There's a wonderful book by Cesariano. There's not a contemporary print of it. Uh, it would be nice to have a contemporary edition. Who do I point it? Next one here. But also, it would be super to have a book about Greek architecture with its gods in. Here we have a beautiful little, um, in, in, in Horoji, in the, the, the greatest period of, of, of Japanese architecture <coughs> and sculpture was uh, in the 11th, 10th century, very similar to the height of the School of Chartres in Europe. That's extraordinarily beautiful coincidence. But here is this beautiful octagonal building, lovely Buddha inside it, and the whole of the geometry is to be found in that little crowning piece at the top. Next one here, we haven't got time to get to it in great detail. This is the crowning piece of that, and I made a geometric analysis of it, and it's just full of the most beautiful things. Not only these three circles, three worlds, which make up four worlds, but if we take the pentagon through it, five-pointed star gives the limit of that little platform you see there, and then the radius at the top. And the, this again, although this is a vessel, this again is that sacred geometry from square to circle to triangle. So the whole of the universe is in here, and then it divides into eight, the noble eightfold path of Buddhism, and the building divides into eight, again the noble eightfold path. And a reference to the heart, too. Next one over here. Here's another absolutely beautiful building from the same part of Japan, the same period. And one thing which the Japanese knew how to make a roof look like a flight of angels, just absolutely superb. The Chinese went a little bit too far, and because their fingers bent and their dancers could bend their fingers right around, you've seen those amazing dancers who do that. The roofs got a little bit rococo. I hope there's nobody Chinese present to be offended by that. But the Japanese absolutely perfected these curves, and they're remarkably similar to the curve of the sword of a samurai, if you've seen it. Just so you don't get too peaceful. So here we have the core of that building here. This is the core of the building. And what, was, what I learned, and why I had the temerity to stand up and talk about Buddhist architecture, which I really know very little about, is because when I was asked to design a Tibetan monastery by um, the a particular sect of Tibetan Buddhists in Colorado, America, I asked on what did I base the design. And I produced um, a measured proportional drawing from a Tibetan source of the Buddha's body. And Sitting Rinpoche, the man I was addressing myself to, said, he said, that's not the Buddha. He said, that's not the Buddha. This is the Buddha. And that completely, um, as they say, blew me away. <laughs> this is the Buddha. That's how we know this person's reached the Buddha nature. This is just, that's just, he said, that's just his last incarnation. Not that that wasn't very important. But this is the symbol of the Buddha. And this is strange plain white body with these two major circles behind. The same two circles we saw behind the Virgin Mary in the city. And then this form transforms into a circle here and then becomes the architecture, the umbrella. By the way, umbrellas are originally signs of sacred state and they were only carried above kings. Now they're very useful to get to remember. <laughs> so, sorry, next one there. I just wanted to draw attention to the fact this extraordinary, um, to put it mildly, um, technique that the Japanese developed to stop an earthquake bringing a building down. The building can rock on all these things are built, so everything, nothing, there's no glue, no string, no nails, no screws allowed in the Buddhist building. 
things just lodge on top of each other. None of this stuff. Mars holding together the natural world, isn't like that? That's iron. That's iron. No iron in here. The only iron that you might see in here would be possibly a disc at the very end in the precious metal. Okay? No iron. So this became this extraordinarily beautiful, um, I mean, this is just an example. It's a real three-dimensional mandala. But all these beams just simply rocked on each other when the, when the wave of, of, of the earthquake went through. I'm not allowed to talk about earthquakes at the moment, because look what the modern world has given. The Western world has given India concrete shell buildings. And look what an earthquake does to those. Anyway, next one here. So this is just half of this beautiful building. And time and again, the Japanese would put water right not only was it very good feng shui, but in fact showed the wonderful paradox of heaven and earth, which, which is reality, which way up is it, and so forth. This is part of this beautiful temple. You just simply walk through here. It's open right way through, and the sacred temple is here. Next one there. I want to jump to Southeast Asia, because what I've been talking about, um, and the reports I've been talking about, when we get down to Southeast Asia, Thailand and places like that, Extraordinary thing is that everything becomes much more um, attenuated and, and, and long and thin. Here, like that multiple um, Buddha with a thousand arms I showed you, this is, this is a particular version with 11 heads. I haven't quite got to the root of why he had 11 heads at that particular point, but there are 11 heads and probably extremely important reasons for it. But what's interesting is this, the, the, the circular forms and the square forms have become drawn and thin. And again, this was pointed out last week, to us by Gregor when he lectured to our department. Next one here. And I found a very nice shot. Again, um, his, his light body is just beautiful and, and, and quite typically Thai um, rather than either uh, Tibetan or Indian or Japanese. Next one here. And of course then what happens is the temple itself becomes all these attenuated forms um, and this, this is in Burma now, this is a Pagan in Burma, and um, it doesn't take much to see the connection, although this is in Thailand, but the, um, when Buddhism migrated down in that direction, um, the temples became quite different. Quite close to, to a Hindu temple, this is quite like many of the forms of Hindu temples, but it is actually based on the light. Next one here. And here's a little tiny detail from inside that temple to show how long and thin it really became. Can you notice that? A little bit more? Yeah, just about. We might need to have better lens to It's all right, a little bit. But it's a very good example. Whereas we are used to seeing um, the Vesica Pisces as the light body in Christianity. And uh, we've just seen some very beautiful Buddhas, this flame-like body, but here's the longest and thinnest flame you might have ever seen, and that's far, that's a detail from this one. Next one there, please. Next one here. Next one here. So I wanted to make a, a jump um, from <coughs> this proportion, which I think is another one on the way. There's one more on here. So no, another way. Forward. Forward. This is the Kamapa, and this is his light body. 
extraordinary, uh, almost candelabra-like, with, with, with all his different incarnations before he became a Kamapala. Kamapala is the head of the Black Hat sect in, in Tibetan Buddhism. Um, so from this thin one to this one which is more important to expect, and the next one here, yes, okay, you can hold on there. <laughs> um, this, this is going back, having filled the leaf out a bit, we come back to the full round. Now I'm going to do a little bit of stuff which I don't want anybody to be offended by, and if you want to um, uh, neatly write me off and put me in the category of a uh, new age nut, this is the time to do it. Um, the latest findings of what the solar body looks like in which we, as a planet, uh, circulating <coughs> looks like this. Next one here, and the sun is in here, and this is the Earth's orbit, and the sun is putting out a solar wind, and it's divided exactly into four quarters by this. The magnetic fields are coming in on this quarter, they're leaving on that quarter, they're coming in on this quarter and leaving on that quarter. This is from a very respectable scientific book about the solar wind that I bought. Me a fortune, but there's such lovely pictures in I could not resist the fact that this is always considered to be the place of the sun in the human body, and I just thought it was a very nice metaphor. Now, this puts me into the category of a totally irresponsible lecturer, so you'll all be happy to go home and say, Well, he said some kind of things, and he said some nutty things as well. Next one here. And the same flame like body is used by a contemporary holy man, and here you see the radiance as well as the leaf and flame-like form. Next one here. Here's the flame-like form. And the two very important circles, which we saw in the Virgin Mary image. And then the ceiling becomes this. And this form here is reflected there. Um, this, of course, is Hindu, not Buddhist. Um, <coughs> it's much we see the sacred form in the middle here, like that. Next one there. Next one here. Also, when um, dear Greville came to speak to us, he, he talked about the pupa leaf and how important the pupa leaf was to Buddhists. And the, 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 if any leaf that you look at is a reminder of your flame-like subtle body, your light body, and your fleshly eye doesn't see the light body, but if you read your Plato very carefully, Plato will tell you about that other eye, which is worth 10,000 of your fleshly eyes, which is the eye of wisdom. So Plato didn't disguise his knowledge of the inner eye of perception. The inner eye of perception can be activated. When it is, you can actually see these things. But you're normally not able to see these things until you are um, pure enough, I hate to say it, but pure enough and not likely to abuse those people to whom you direct your attention. There is, there is a moral necessity in how you are spiritually developed and how much self-control you have before you give them these gifts. This, I think, is a naughty cooked photograph. It's the cover of a book, you see. Sometimes you have to... I don't believe any rainbow's ever been that big. But nevertheless, I think somebody very cleverly. I just want to get to Tibet to finish my talk. Here we are in Tibet. And here is the same holy man. And I just wanted you just, because he's a holy man, to observe the difference of somebody holding a flame here and a holy man holding a flame. And what's intriguing here is this flame occurs in many, many sacred images, whether it's Islam or Christianity or whatever. But here we get the reproduction of the light body very beautifully. Next one here. Next one here. What we very rarely ever see is, and I doubt this man knew his photographs being taken, both in Islam and 
No doubt in Christianity as well, because in Christianity when the Masons went down in the 13th century, they took their, their compasses with them. In Islam, a, a, a craftsman will never show you his compasses. I found this out time and again. They, in some places, they would even deny they used them until you saw them scratching the glasses. But this, here you're seeing a Tibetan master using his compasses. And I think it's unlikely that he knew his new Because the, the compass is a sacred tool. It, it is, it's a tool of creation. It, it, it's a single um, thing which becomes divided, and when it comes divided, it becomes a triangle. It, 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 is, it, is, it, is, it is the tool of the all-knowledge. And there was no such thing as an architect in, 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 in the time of Chartres. The architect so-called was called a master of the compasses. And yet we haven't got any specimens of, of compasses from that period. Somebody might ask why. This is a model of the universe, the turning universe, and no doubt all the planetary orbits and so forth, in the Tibetan, one of the Tibetan mandalas. And, there, and, and quite clearly, you couldn't paint this without such an instrument. Next one here. We're just going to look into the sacred geometry, the meaning of the sacred geometry of the Tibetan, and then we see the finish. Next one here. Here is the, the kind of image I put in front of Situ Rinpoche. He said, do I design your monastery on these proportions? And this is when he said, no, 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 that's just his last incarnation. Don't take too much notice of that. It's the flame body behind. But here are the proportions of the Tibetan canon, both arms open and um, in lotus position, and legs come right down to here. And there is it being used as the basis of constructing a particular mandala. And the overall span is the body. From the elbows is speech. From here to here is mind. These are the symbolic meanings. And here is the profile of the building. Which is, which is being designed, and here are some of the chakras being shown, just four of them, one, two, three, four. And the little eight-fold chakra, not the big heart chakra, being shown. This is in a contemporary paperback, the name of which just eludes me, is it? I don't know which one it is, it's book, quite recently came out with Dalai Lama, didn't make it I think it's just called Mandalas. It's just called Mandalas, is it? That sounds like it. The sacred mandala in Tibetan Buddhism. Well, Marshall gave it me for Christmas, you see. By Martin Brown. By Martin Brown. There's a lady who knows over there. She's holding the Bible. Anybody wants to know about Tibetan Buddhism? Speak that lady. She obviously one of my students. Um, okay, from there, next one here. And next one here comes first. Last little ritual I'm going to show you is how sacred geometry is done by the Buddhists, not Interesting enough, not with, with, with compasses, although the thread is sometimes used as a trammel to make circles. Here, first of all, the threads, the sacred threads, and the thread is bright, by the way. That's what that piece of paper you've got in the free handout will explain to you. These are sacred breaths being impregnated with this um, particular white substance, which is no doubt quite esoteric how it's made. Then four, um, or eight in fact, um, uh, of the monks, they have to carry both bells and, and, and um, <coughs> what are these called, these ones? Dorji, but it means something. Dorji means something else besides Dorji. Dorji is a Tibetan name for it. Thunderbolt. Thunderbolt? Oh, yes. So, in other words, to make sure they are holding the, an office rather than being themselves, they're holding an office, they are now going to put these lines in. Next one here. When those lines have been put in a certain degree, little blessings are put on. Here's the Dalai Lama involved. Can you see how important it is? This man has been very careful not to breathe on this. 
and these blessings are being put in, and eventually, this book is an extraordinary book, um, which shows the whole process, next one here, and here is the mandala, and the colours are being filled in. This is the, the linear drawing, here are the colours, they're done in little plastic cups to show how wonderful the modern world is helping these traditions. And all the, what you're looking at here has now become as beautiful as that. These are the four worlds. The word mandala, or mandara, if it's Japanese. Japanese people don't say mandala because they can't say la, they say mandara. Um, it means seeing all the world at once. Now, I have that hot from the lips of City Rinpoche, so please don't think I'm trying to give you a, a, a rigid definition, but it means a mandala means to see the whole at once, the whole world or the whole universe at once. Next one here. And again, just a reminder that this form here, although it's two-dimensional, and remember, two-dimensionality is more sacred than three-dimensionality, because two-dimensionality is moving back towards the sacred point of origin of manifestation. But from a mandala like that, this is how the kumbhul grows. I've tra shown this before. Whether it's a new temple form like this, which would be more like that, or whether it becomes this form. These are in Tibet. Next one here. And just a last little bit I want to show you, just to get down to being a little bit more practical. I've just found this book recently. I brought it with me if anybody wants to look at it. Um, sorry, it's a bad slide. But this is an extraordinarily good book. And I could see a whole series of these books being done, which is actually to put the life back into architecture. In other words, this whole book is beautifully hand-drawn of little people in the contemporary, how they live, what they cooked in, what they ate, and where they slept, and how they slept, and the architecture clearly put all in one book. But the tragedy is that we have architectural books without anybody in them. And all the modern architectural magazines, they'll, they, they, the architects will take a photograph of the building as soon as it's complete and they'll be in it. Most architectural magazines don't have any human beings in them. Except in the adverts, where they're half dressed in the shower. <laughs> anyway, this is a very, very good book and I just want to show one or two illustrations from it. Next one here. This is the Edo period um, of, of a town, a uh, city being built. Two markets, different kinds of sacred precinct here. Not too far from the representation again of the whole Buddha body in manifest form. Not unlike the Vastu of India and the Feng Shui principles of geometric design. And this is the Haiyan period, which I did make a note of. And the Haiyan period is. Can't read my notes. Next one here. But. I hope the Muslims here will be fascinated by this. Within that grid, which is very misleading, which caused New York to be the torture that it is, each one of these had through streets, they had uh, what's called neighborhood watch offices, like the gates in Islamic City. This is a neighborhood. It's a Machia neighborhood. And they all had these little dead ends, which are exactly the same as in Islamic City. Up to 700 AD, the land was owned by who was ever on it. Private ownership didn't come in until the 8th century in, in Japan. Extraordinary thing. It was actually universally owned. The land was universal. Whoever was on the land, that was their land. So here you see exactly like the Islamic city, not in such um, intricate weavings as the Islamic city, but these are all private um, ways into private areas. Now just one or two illustrations from this book, which is so good. I'm sure they're a little bit dark, but down one of these alleyways, People would live in very humble dwellings, often just two rooms, extraordinarily people. The Japanese have always been very uh, numerous on a small space, and they've learned to live because of their Buddhism, because of their quietude, 
because of the sitting in void and meditation, they could live uh, in two rooms very happily. We're just learning when sits here in this part of the world and sometimes finding rather horrendous. But here's a basket maker. That's the whole shop. That little piece is the whole shop. A basket maker. Next one here. And here is a lady who makes fans. And this is her whole life in this one room. Baby asleep. She'll sleep here. Her clothes and washing and everything's done. This is an open passage with a little platform. And she will be selling out the window onto that street here with just a curtain for a door here. And vegetable. This is where she'll do all her cooking. So her whole house is just one open room. Extraordinary. And it's such a, to me, it was such an eye-opener to see somebody who's made a book about architecture and suddenly inhabited it. How often do you see a book on architecture inhabited? Next one. I am not pressing this point too hard. And here is the foot soldier's house. And we now find this tatami map, the basis of proportion in Japanese architecture is a double square. And um, this would be called an eight room, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, an eight mat room. This is a four mat room. He slept in this, this is his bedroom, and he had four mats. <coughs> this is his entertaining room. He gave tea here, and that's his kitchen. A little bit more, foot soldier. His sword, his sacred instrument, of his, which, he, which he, he mustn't draw unless he's fighting for justice and truth, and his Buddhist altar is here. What that would look like, if we were able to see in it, next one there. I'm uh, sorry, that, that's, that's the whole of this slide. I beg your pardon, one, one slide out here. This is the vestibule for the toilet. Entrance, one entrance here. This um, kitchen here, main room, and his bedroom here. That's the whole of the soldier's dwelling. Quite generous compared to some of these other ones. This is a close-up of that little room, and that would be his altar, so he would do his meditation in relationship to this. And this would be his business of being a soldier. Next one here. And that's what would be inside here, or something similar. This is actually something which I might bring in to show my students. It's I, one of my treasures I have in my home. And it's actually Kuan Yin. It's not Buddha, it's Kuan Yin, which is the goddess of mercy. Um, and here is her divinity, which is a separate form. OK, next one there. Really there, folks. You've been very patient. I just want to go back to this. Um, area of, of from solidity and so forth. The idea in both China and Japan and Buddhism was to actually find a place where you could just simply meditate about nature and the void, whatever, and that's symbolized by the small amount of drawing, the most beautifully made little house here with the sage, you can just see the sage sitting there looking across the sea and so forth, and some peasant dwellings up here. This beautiful tree, these trees were venerated, and a tree like that would be venerated so much that they would make these little tiny miniature trees and have them inside the city so they would remember that they were not separate from the natural world. It's a close up, here he is again. And again, this is much the Buddha nature as, as anything else in the whole picture. Next one here. And I particularly want to introduce you to Hui Neng. Hui Neng is a great inspiration to me. I read him very regularly. Hui Neng, great Zen master, and he would do the most menial tasks. And here's a painter painting him doing one of his tasks of cutting the stripping down piece of bamboo to build out of. And he was a Zen Buddhist ma master. 
This wasn't painted until the 13th century, but he himself was very, very much earlier. I'm just going to put a quote by him on the screen here because I think it's very important that we try to get a little bit of the flavor. Years first century BC. Well, this painting was made very much later. It's a doctrine of great hope. Um, and I just want to finish with two more images. One here. The sacred sound of Mani Padme is to do with the lotus, the heart of the lotus. And again, a little message from Tsong Kapa, the leader of the Black Hat sect. I showed his big light body. This is the advice of Tsong Kapa, the Tibetan. sacred friend. <laughs> That's all you're getting from me tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Question, you have to take them home. <laughs> Any other um, question? Well, it's impossible to summarize a, a lecture like that. It's a rather relief when you're the chairman to have a talk by Keith because there's so much to it. You feel relieved to say, well, that's it, folks. <laughs> um, every picture, in a way, opens up a whole field, and there you could have many questions to each picture. But uh, you see what I meant earlier. Well, first of all, about Vaudeville. But secondly, more seriously, how exhilarating this whole subject is because you come to realize that uh, subject, uh, sacred geometry is the expression of uh, reality and a wisdom outside of which nothing falls at all. And one soon becomes to realize that the modern way of looking at things puts everything, as it were, to use a figure of speech, outside of wisdom somehow. And this, this. Uh, Sacred geometry puts everything inside the context of wisdom, and I think that's one of the most illuminating things that I've ever learned. This whole perspective that I've got from Keith, uh, Keith's lectures and friendship with him over the years. Now we've got—I uh, don't doubt there are questions. We've got about ten minutes, perhaps. We can have a few questions. If there's anybody who would like to ask Keith a question, and he will do his level best. This lady here at the front. Can you? Can I ask you to speak your question loudly so the other people can hear? Um, did sacred geometry have one origin, or did it spring up from more than one source? Wow. So <laughs> <laughs> um, everything has one origin. That's the first reply. Everything has one origin. Um, what you take that origin to be is a matter of where you personally are at with your own path, I think. Um, there is such a thing as unity. Unity begins things, and unity completes things. Um, and in a sense, you see, your question has to be framed in a historical way. Because, um, but the, the fact of the matter is, it's part of human nature. Whatever human nature is, if human nature is Buddha nature, then it's part of that. But it is intrinsic to a human being. There is nothing we're built of which is not absolutely exquisite geometry, which is the atomic world. 
Now, what tells a hydrogen atom to go on being hydrogen? What tells a nitrogen atom to go on being nitrogen? What tells an oxygen atom to go on being oxygen? If you can answer that, which is the most profound mystery of the physics world, the physicists never even address that. Why are these things kept in such exquisite... How are they kept in such exquisite balance? Everything we're made of, we can't see it, is made of exquisite geometry. What maintains that? That's the root of your question. And in a way, that, that, that's the root of your... You, in the end, um, Plato was allowed to be read, according to St. Augustine, because he said it's ultimately a mystery. So um, to make an obvious answer to what you just asked, it isn't there. I would just say it's intrinsic to me. You will find it in yourself. And part of what we've done by founding a VT department is we actually put students through, and most of them, if we actually, um, well, we put them through geometry by taking them through ourselves, and, and uh, it's extraordinary what it does. Just simply, if you can be taught by a teacher and go through line by line, um, it, it becomes quite simple. Sadly, it has become a matter of algebra, and people want to prove things. When people want to prove things, it's a sign of lack of faith. Proving is only when you haven't got faith. Now don't bring a scientist in and get me on that one. Sorry? How is the Buddha represented in the past? How is the Buddha represented in the past? How is the... Ah, that's right. Uh, both the past and the present Buddha are in lotus position with their legs folded. But you'd have to ask somebody like Greville Lindock, who knows more about it and is a practicing Buddhist. But I don't think that should be too hard to find. It just is very extraordinary that the Buddha of the future sits like we do on a chair with his legs down. It's very extraordinary, that. And it's very extraordinary. The center of Borobudur is a Buddha of the future. Um, I mean, the Buddhist would probably tell you there is only actually a present. There's no future, there's no past, there's only a present. And that, that's the hardest thing to realize. <laughs> yes? Keith, is there any connection between the Zagarat and Mesopotamian architecture and mm. the stellar yes. of yes. I would say there would be, definitely. Um, but what's interesting, the ziggurat is a model of the universe, and, and it's very likely you would find the number of, of, of paths, number of circulations, would reflect the number of planets, which again are related to the, the, the chakra system, the planets. Are, are each planet is allocated one of the chakras. So the ziggurat, you're actually going up the spiral of the, of the universe to get to the centre of it, which would be the sun at the top. So from the other, it, it would, I mean, all sacred architecture from any period will be an attempt to rebuild and remember, remember, put the members back together to remember the universe as a whole. That's all it's about. So I would say yes. In sort of secrecy in dealing with the compass and the mm. masons, why, why if in this we need to be so secretive about it? Um, well, it's very interesting that um, what is the role of secrecy? Uh, it's it's a quite a deep question, and quite honestly, the only answer I can give you is it's protective. And most people don't even know that the word secretary has the same meaning. A secretary is somebody who keeps your secrets because they're very close to you. That's what the way of the same root. So um, the, the, the whole point of secrecy, the only point of secrecy, is to protect people from their own curiosity and to protect people from trying to get power in the food body, in the food world, rather than the spiritual world. That's the only reason I can come to. Um, you might be interested in the last conversation I had with Sir Rinpoche. I asked him whether I should publish certain things. He said, don't do it. 
don't do it. He said, there are keys which open doors, and there are keys which open the next door, and there are keys which open the next door, and you've got to do it. If you put too much information out now, these are his words, he said, there's always a Hitler waiting to take advantage of it. And what did the Romans do when they came to Britain the first time? They found the ley lines, which are the spiritual lines, and they put roads on them so they could conquer Britain with their military um, chariots. So people with the wrong motives and thinking that the material world is the only one, they're the people who you keep the secrets from, not people who are trying to aspire to truth, goodness, and beauty. There are no secrets from those people. There are no secrets from anybody seeking truth, goodness, and beauty. But those who want power of other people, there's reason to keep secrets. That's my view. So I guess Hitler using the swastika and reversing it, isn't it? Yeah, well, Hitler made the swastika the wrong way. Yeah. That's what's called instant karma. It wasn't as instant as it ought to have been, but it was. <laughs> just, just one more, perhaps, one more question. This time is getting on a bit. Is that on? No? All right, well, we'll save some time for that time. Uh, can I just point out that um, on the remnant this evening, of course, on the 5th of March, there is, in fact, a talk on Sermon by Carol Burner. And on March the 19th uh, is the next uh, night, uh, Monday, for Aspects of Chinese um, Tradition and Architecture by Keith. So that's And I, I did hint um, at the beginning, introducing Keith, that uh, I may have given the impression that he, he doesn't actually, he's never published anything, or it's very difficult. And my apologies go to Thomas Neurath <laughs> and Denton Hudson, who in fact has published at least two books of these, which have been, I think, in print for, oh, 20 years, have they, Thomas, or something like that. So they must be proving their work for a publisher to keep them available for so long. So there is a book sale there, uh, now when we finish, and the very last announcement of all is that, this is from Stephen, in his capacity as our administrator, and the one who has to balance the books, uh, latecomers, would you please pay <laughs> at the front? <laughs> All right. Otherwise, you'll never find your water body. So, it actually remains for me to thank Keith very much, uh, indeed, for uh, an exhilarating and exciting talk, as always, Keith. And I look forward to seeing you on the 19th, at least, uh, which is the next day for Keith's lecture. Thank you very much. Thank you.